And welcome to the show once again. The number to get hold of Lior anytime, 416-216-5900. Got a bunch of emails today as well. That is Lior, L-I-O-R, employmenthour.com. Going to uh, cover first the week that was. How was it? Good, John. Thank you very much, and welcome everyone to the show. Uh, glad to be here as always. And as as always, I like to start off the show by talking about a couple of uh, incidents, a couple of cases, matters that I've dealt with this week to, to give people a bit of a flavor that they may not be the only ones in this situation. So the first one, actually, uh, you know, a bit of an interesting situation. I, I felt quite bad for this person, but the good news is we'll be able to help uh, help her. Uh, what happened is this person worked uh, in, a, in, a, in a factory environment and kept expressing concerns to her employer that they didn't have the proper safety equipment for various jobs that, that uh, the employees were asked to do. The employer uh, didn't do anything, didn't, uh, didn't address it, didn't uh, nice. look into making any changes in the workplace. So what the employee eventually did is she alerted the Ministry of Labor and asked the Ministry of Labor inspector to come in and take a look in the workplace. Now, uh, the Ministry of Labor inspector came in. I'm not sure exactly what uh, the inspector did, if there was any orders against the employer. But what the employer did after that, that, that uh, for, for the technical term is it spazzed out. I got uh, very, <laughs> that's very lawyer upset. term. That's, yes. that's law school yeah. speak. Upper Canada, Canada yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Uh, it's Latin. Uh, and ultimately decided to, uh, to, to find out who, who alerted the Ministry of Labor. And when it found out it was this lady, Boom. let her go. Yep. And now that's probably the worst thing that the employer could have done. Not only uh, is obviously this would be a wrongful dismissal because this employee is owed severance. But in addition to that, this is what we call a reprisal. Under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, if an employee tries to enforce uh, his or her rights and as a result gets penalized, and there's no worse penalty than getting fired, okay. uh, then that's a reprisal. That's a violation of the, human, uh, of the uh, Occupational Health and Safety Act, which means the employer now is going to have to pay this employee a heck of a lot more money than if they uh, let her go in the usual circumstances. So this is going to end up costing the employer a lot of money, and it's just a very bad idea. And... This poor employee that was just concerned about her safety and the safety of her colleagues and her co-workers tried to address this with her employer, uh, couldn't and only then involved the Ministry of Labor, ended up losing her job. The good news is she's going to get her uh, compensation. The bad news for the employer, this is going to be a very expensive lesson for them to learn. Uh, so if you're in that situation, if you are concerned about safety, uh, you, you have recourse. You absolutely can involve the Ministry of Labor. And if you get penalized for that, man, that's wrong. And, and there's going to be some significant consequences for the employer for doing that. I mean, we could, we could figure out what our severance would be in this case. But how do they figure out that other number? You said it's a very large number. How, what's it based on? Yeah, and, and it's simply based on precedent. The Ministry of Labor has established what these things are worth. Yeah, I mean... Is it big or not? Usually it's in the order of about twenty to $25,000. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. lot of money, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly for a smaller operation like this for the employer, it's going to cost them quite a bit of money when they thought they can just let this person go without any compensation. So not only are they going to have to pay, I think in this case, 10 or 12 months of severance, they're going to have to pay, pay another twenty dollars $25,000 because of this, what we call reprisal. If this person was about 60 or 62, this could be a nice little windfall to retire on. Yeah. If that was the I, case, right? You know? Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's just bad, exactly. bad call on the employer. Now, from a bad employer, let's talk about a good employer. Sure. Uh, and uh, I, I talked last week on the show, John, about termination for cause and about how the employer has to build up its case. Well, in this particular case, uh, I haven't seen an employer do a better job building its case. This employer, that they let go of the employee, they came, the employee came to see me. The employer had documented every incident of misconduct, had provided five warnings and a suspension. If, every single time the employer provided warning, the employer kept saying, if you do this again, we may have to let you go. 
Uh, if we do this again, we may have to let you go five times. Due diligence. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The employee uh, couldn't argue with, uh, with the allegations because in every letter, the employer outlined, here's what you did and here's why we believe that you've done that. We've talked to this person. We've talked to that person. It was, it was unbelievable. It was textbook. textbook. Yeah. Absolutely. I couldn't have written it better myself if I had tried. So what I had to tell this employee is, unfortunately, even though each incident in and of itself is not a big deal, would not be cause. Okay, we're talking about situations where there's conflict with other people and some mm-hmm. words were said that shouldn't have been said, uh, but looked at it together. It's and a culmination the, of everything, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, what we, it's what we call, yeah, it's a culmination of all the incidents. And because you're effectively a repeat offender and the employer has done everything it could do to fix the problem, well, what's left for the employer to do? So I had to tell this employee that, no, unfortunately, I cannot help them and that the employer was right. Now, uh, 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 fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, it's actually rare to see an employer uh, do its homework, do its, its work as, as well as this employer did. But for this employer, had it not done its work, it would be liable for significant severance. So this right. employer, just by doing its homework, being diligent and documenting things, this employer saved a lot of money and was able to get rid of an employee that obviously wasn't doing a very good job. So employers, uh, take note of that. If, uh, if you're going to let someone go for cause, if you're concerned that this relationship is not heading in the way that you want it to, to go, document, document, document. And if, if you don't know how to do that, it's worth uh, spending a few shekels on a lawyer and getting it done correctly, That's right, right yeah. although we don't accept shekels. <laughs> not anymore, anyway. No, no. <laughs> Canadian dollars only. Uh, 416-216-5900, Lior at employmenthour.com. I want to talk about working through an employment agency or temp agency because a lot of people are doing that these days. Uh, it's getting tougher just to walk up and get a job off the street. So uh, an employee is hired through a placement agency. Is the agency the person's employer? And in many cases, the answer to that actually is no. Uh, and the reason for that is uh, when, when a person works through, through a placement agency, an employment agency, temp, temp agency, they work for a company. They work at the company's office mm. exclusively for them, take directions from that company. So they don't really have anything to do with the placement agency other than the fact that they get a check from the placement agency. So in the eyes of the law, the law, remember, always, always looks at substance over form. Mm -hmm. So the law doesn't really care so much who says they're your employer. The law cares about who really acts as your employer. So who are you taking directions from? Who are you benefiting through your work? So in many cases, even though someone is hired through a temp agency or placement agency and they believe that their employer really is the the placement agency, the, the real employer is the company for which the work is done. We'll take a short break. The number is 416-216-5900. That's Lior's number and his uh, personal number. His email, Lior at employmenthour.com. We'll uh, get to some emails here in the next segment as we uh, we chop through a uh, a very large stack here on the Employment Hour. We'll get to that on AM640 and AM900 CHML. The number is 416-216-5900 to get a hold of Lior and Lior at employmenthour.com. We started talking about uh, just before the end of the break, working through an employment agency or temp agency. Uh, I'll ask you this. Can a person have more than one employer with respect to the same job? Yeah, and then as, as counterintuitive as this may sound, absolutely yeah. yes. The employer, the, the employee can have more than one employer with respect to the same job. We call this co-employment uh, when the, employ, the employee may actually receive directions from uh, more than one uh, company or more than one person, and both those companies may have obligations to the employee. So. This, this does often apply in a uh, situation where the employee gets a job through a temp agency or a placement agency. The law may consider both the agency and the company for which the employee works as the employer. So that means that both of those have obligations to the employee. 
uh, and we see that very often. And most uh, most individuals don't understand that. And most companies. So you hire an, an employee through a, a placement agency. You think we, I don't have any obligation to, towards this employee. All the thing I have to do is pay the placement agency whatever I agree to. Right. Well, in fact, no. You've hired an employee, and you now have the same legal obligations towards that person as you would towards your other regular employees. If there's more than one employer, uh, how does severance work if it comes down that far? Uh, so no, you don't get double severance, unfortunately. <laughs> I know John. John is like, mm, can I have more than one employer? <laughs> That's right. How about five? <laughs> yeah, five severances for everyone. <laughs> That's right. No, you can You don't get double severance. All it means is that both are on. The hook for severance. Okay. So let's say you know one went out of business, the other one would be on the hook. Uh, usually, as between the two of them, the, let's say the placement agency and the actual company, they would figure out who's going to pay severance. But the employee would have recourse as against either or both, but but for only for the fixed amount of severance, not double severance. I'm trying to think of an example where this would be the case. So let me give you a very good example. Uh, take a, a, a large company. I'll, I'll mention IBM just because it's a large company, not okay. because I, I know of anything specific there. Uh, IBM may decide to to hire uh, an employee to to work on their uh, computer system, uh, and they decide to hire them through a through a placement agency. Okay. So they're not employing the person in the sense that they're not paying the person directly. They're paying the placement agency. The placement agency is paying the employee. They, the only thing they do is they give the, the person the job, and the person works there for, for two years or three years. And IBM then decides, you know what? We decide we don't need this person. They tell the placement agency, placement agency, uh, we don't want this person anymore. We don't need him. Well, in the eyes of the law, now IBM, again, just as an example, not picking on them, uh, is also the employer. So IBM, if if the placement agency went out of business tomorrow, IBM would be on the hook to pay this employee wow. their severance. Now, hmm. where where it's often uh, very important is an employee may sign a contract with the placement agency that only provides them for the minimum amount of severance, but they don't have a contract like that with the the company uh. with IBM, as an example. So they may say, wait a second, I can still get my full severance from IBM. True. True. Nice. Absolutely. So uh, for, for a company, what I tell employers is if you're going to hire someone through a placement agency, uh, you actually want to make sure that the placement agency in writing assumes your liability to the employee. So if for some reason it, t- it turns out that me, IBM, I have to pay this employee any amount of money, you placement agency agree to take over that responsibility. That's very nice. That's yeah. smart. That's smart dealing right well, there. I am a smart guy. Yeah, you are indeed. 416-216-5900 and Lior at Employment Hour, uh, employmenthour.com. Uh, what if no taxes are deducted? I'm sure this happens all the time and the person's considered an independent contractor. Yeah, John. Well, There's those two words again. Those, those two words. And yep. we see that often. They oftentimes go hand in hand, being hired through an agency and being considered self-employed or an independent contractor. And, you know, I, I always try to make it simple because it is. If you work somewhere... Uh, for any length of time, you work for them exclusively from their offices, taking directions from them, interacting with their people and their uh, uh, facilities. You're an employee of that company. It doesn't matter if you call yourself self-employed. When are you self-employed? When are you an independent contractor? If you work remotely, if you have more than one co- uh, client you work for, if you, f- you don't have fixed hours, uh, if you don't work for five years so it's a more limited engagement at that point, you may be well an independent contractor. But what I see nine out of ten times, really, is people calling themselves independent contractors, companies calling people independent contractors, where really what they're looking at is employment relationships. I want to bounce over to get to a, an email here. Got Rob in Toronto says, I'm about to leave a job that I've had for 15 years to join another company that recruited me. Any words of advice? Yeah, and, and very, very important question. And 
if, if uh, Rob has worked for a company for 15 years, he has some security there in the sense that if this company wanted to let him go for whatever reason, because he's worked there for so long, he has the security of getting a certain amount of severance, significant amount of severance that's going to help him uh, find another job or carry him until he finds another job. Well, what happens if he leaves this company because he's recruited and joins another company? And it doesn't work out. You know, we just realize we don't work well together and the mm-hmm. company lets him go after a month or two. That company is going to say, well, we only have an employee that's been with us for, for a month or two. We're going to give him no severance or very little severance. And Rob would have left that severance that he had that could, he could have had previously, and now he still has to find another job and he has no money. So that's a problem. If you're going to give up your security that you have to join another company, you want to negotiate favorable severance terms with that company. You want to enter into a, com- a contract of employment that outlines that if they let you go, they will give you some form of an enhanced severance, more than what they would otherwise give you. Mm-hmm. What you certainly don't want to do, uh, the opposite of what I just said, is join another company, leave your secure company, and sign something that allows them to terminate you with minimal severance or with no severance. Because then you really could be in a situation where you're you're left uh, holding the bag with nothing to show for it. So what I propose for him is negotiate severance uh, in advance. Negotiate a term in the job offer that would provide him for more severance. You know, maybe right off the bat, even if he's let go on month one, he should be getting six-month severance. And after that, he should be getting you know, another a month for every year of service or something like that. Mm-hmm. More severance than you would otherwise be entitled to to get take, some security. Take a short break. The number 416-216-5900 to contact Lior directly or Lior at employmenthour.com. Lots more of the show coming up on Talk Radio AM 640 and AM 900 CHML. The number to get a hold, 416-216-5900, Lior at employmenthour.com. That's L-I-O-R. You want to get a hold anytime. Get to some more emails here in just a bit. We were talking about working through an employment agency or temp agency. Um, why would a company hire an employment employee indirectly through an employment agency? That's just I, getting them themselves. Yeah, no, and the reason they're going to hire them usually is to avoid responsibilities that they would have to an employee. So they may think, well... I don't have to pay this employee vacation pay. Uh, I don't have to put them on my payroll. I'm not going to have to worry about severance. All these things that come with hiring an employee, an employer may think, well, I don't have to worry about that. I just hire someone through a placement agency. But fortunately, the law is a bit more clever than that. And Hmm. uh, if if it was as easy as that, anyone could just hire people through placement agencies. There would be no employees. You know, all of Chorus's employees would be through placement agencies. All my employees and my law firm would be through placement agencies, and no one would have employees. That's the reason why that's not the case or that's not possible is, again, substance over form. If you hire someone through a placement agency, but they work for you for five years or for whatever length of time, mm-hmm. they work exclusively for you, uh, you have the, your business cards, they do uh, work uh, you know, together with other people, they're your employee. So the reason why people hire employ- employees through placement agencies to avoid obligations, but they're actually not accomplishing that. Let's talk about severance if the employer gets let go. Who's on the hook? If the employee uh, lets go, as I said, both are on the hook for it, including the company for which you, you actually work. Not, and it's not necessarily just the company, the placement agency. And uh, in many cases, it's, uh, it's, it becomes a, a dispute because the employer for which you work is, is going to say, no, no, we're not on the hook uh, for severance. It's only the placement agency. The placement agency may say, well, we only have to pay you minimal amount of severance. And these things can get, a, can get ugly uh, quite fast. But the, the general rule is the company for which you perform services, the company that you go to work in every day where you're sitting in their offices, 
that company's going to be on the hook. It's, I mean, obviously, it's not your business here in law, but it's everything we've talked about so far this hour. Like, why would you even want to run an, an employment agency? It seems like the onus is always on you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it, there must be money to be made there because they're, they're out there. There's a lot of temp agencies, employment agency, but it seems like a bit of a racket if things go south. <sighs> they do. And, and, but certainly, I think there's a place for it because sometimes an employer does need someone for a very limited engagement, right. for, a, for a very specific task. And it's easier to go through a placement agency because you don't have to hire people and interview people and, and find them. Someone else does the job for you. And some companies would pay good money to a placement agency to make that happen. But if you're really looking for a full-time permanent employee, but you're just going to do that through a placement agency, that's frankly a waste of time. Yeah. What can these companies do that use employment agencies do to protect themselves? Uh, the best thing to do is, uh, first of all, Two things. Number one, if you're hiring someone and this re- the, the relationship with the employee becomes uh, more permanent, okay, we've had Bob for three months, now we're going to probably want to keep him longer, just talk, tell the placement agency you want to hire Bob directly. So hire the employee directly, assume them as an employee, and, and just treat the employee as you would anyone else. The other thing the, the uh, placement, sorry, the employer can protect itself, do protect itself, as I said, is enter into an agreement with the placement agency that provides that any liability would be that of the placement agency. And if a court ever decides that the employer is on the hook, the placement agency would just automatically assume that liability. If someone's been working uh, with a company through an agency for a year, and like you said, it happens, you know, we like this guy, we want to hire him directly for us. He's been working for two months. Does that employer now say if we let him go, we only base it on two months uh, severance, or now it includes that whole year he was with through the agency? It it does include that whole year as well. It does include, but what an employer can do to limit their liability is enter into a contract of Mm -hmm. employment with the employee that provides for lesser severance in the event of termination. 416-216-5900, Lior at employmenthour.com. Got Paul Natobico writes in, says, I was just let go with eight months left on my contract. There you go. I only received two weeks of severance. Am I owed anything else? Most people now are listening, nope, sounds right. Sounds One week right. per year. Yeah. You're good. So, Wrong. So here's, here's the answer to mm-hmm. that. Uh, now, I don't have all the information, but generally speaking, when you're on what we call a fixed-term contract, a contract that has a specific end date, if the employer ends the relationship before that end date, the employer has to pay out the balance of the contract. So if Paul has another eight months on his contract and he was let go, no, he's not owed only two weeks. He's owed eight months because that's how long there is mm-hmm. on his contract. Now, the only exception to that is if the contract explicitly gives the employer an early exit type of a provision where it allows the employer to end the contract sooner on the basis of some lesser payment. But unless that's the case, uh, I would certainly suggest, Paul, to give me a call because he may actually be owed eight months' compensation, not two weeks' compensation. Would he get any chance or any time it comes up where an employee would get the fulfillment of their contract and severance, or no, that's just contract? And and here's why. Remember that there's an alternative to severance, and that is notice. So an employer can give notice or pay severance. Well, what happens employee, if the employee uh, starts a job and they know that they're only working for two years, so they have a fixed term for two years, well, they would have received, would they not, two years notice that their employment's coming to an end. Mm-hmm. So if they've received notice, why would they get severance? Right. So, so no, they, that doesn't happen. Now, in some situations, which are going to be very rare, where the employee is working on a fixed term basis, but for five years or more, they, at that point, there still may be an obligation to pay that employee severance at the end of the five years, but that's going to be fairly rare. 416-216-5900, Lior at employmenthour.com. Uh, we'll take a short break and uh, lots more coming up. want to get into understanding the duty to accommodate. 
Very cool stuff. Complex, but we'll uh, we'll machete our way through it here in the employment hour. We'll take a short break right here on Talk Radio AM six forty and AM nine hundred CHML. The number to get a hold of Lior, 416-216-5900 and employmenthour.com or Lior at employmenthour.com. Uh, I want to get into understanding uh, the duty of accommodate. What is the duty to accommodate? The duty to accommodate uh, is triggered when an employee is asking for help or assistance with respect to sp- uh, some specific grounds. So uh, it could be for religious reasons. So, for mm-hmm. example, an employee may say, well, I need to be able to leave early because of the Sabbath. So the duty to accommodate means that the employer has to allow them to do that in some situations. The duty to accommodate is usually triggered in situations where there's a disability. So an employee may not uh, be able to do the job uh, as it is because they have a bad back, they have some medical condition, and the duty to accommodate means that the employer may have to make changes to their job duties or to the workplace itself in order to allow them to work within their limitations. So the duty to accommodate really is a situation where the employer has to provide assistance to an employee uh, with respect to some prohibited or with respect to some specific grounds. Can this be, uh, you mentioned the Sabbath, could it be uh, a yearly thing, say Sabbath or Ramadan, same thing every year they expect Absolutely. It? Okay. And a religious yeah. accommodation actually is, is a very big uh, issue. And, and certainly, uh, you know, especially in, in Ontario, we have people uh, from many faiths, may, many religions and backgrounds. Uh, an employer does have to accommodate. And sometimes it can get a bit tricky because, because of all the religions. It's hard to say, well, is this really... Uh, a, a tenant of your religion, do you really need this or not? Right. Uh, but generally speaking, yes, if, if it's a recognized religion, recognized belief, an employer does have to provide accommodation. And along those lines, who has the right to be accommodated? Yeah, and first of all, what, what's important here is that uh, not everyone has a right to be accommodated. So you don't have a right to be accommodated just because you need someone's help. So, uh, you, for example, if I... Uh, uh, if I say, well, you know, it's it's some, it's very important to my religion that we give to others. So I want to be able to leave early so I can go to a volunteer in a soup kitchen. Mm-hmm. That may be very nice of me, but my religion does not actually require me to go and volunteer in a soup kitchen. So I, I may ask my employer to allow me to leave early, but the employer doesn't have to. Uh, so it's, and, and the other example, you know, you don't have to accommodate someone, for example, because they are, uh, you know, they have a certain car that doesn't drive well, so you have to allow them to come in uh, later because their their car is really crappy or they can't afford a car. Uh, It's only based on prohibited grounds. Some of those are uh, religion, uh, medical uh, conditions or disability, family status. Those are the common ones that would require accommodation. So it's not every situation that the employer needs help, that the employee needs help, that it triggers the employer's obligation to provide that help. Do you see a lot of people trying to take this further and not having any basis for it in your practice? Yeah. and Common and ones? I, I certainly see people that uh, are, are very uh, oftentimes quick to, to uh, judge the employer's efforts, not necessarily knowing what the employer did or didn't do mm. to try to accommodate them. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, employers do have a fairly strict duty. So in, in fairness to the individuals, employers have a strict duties. And some employers may immediately back off from trying to accommodate just because it gets a bit difficult or it's, you know, it's going to be a bit of a pain in the butt to, to provide the employee the help they need, so we're not going to do it. It doesn't work that way. The duty to accommodate is pretty strict. And it can set precedent, too, if you have a, you know, a place with thousands of employees, right? And a lot of, a lot of employers are going to think of that, and, and that's mm-hmm. actually legitimate. There, mm-hmm. there have been cases in the courts where the court said, 
you know, if you accommodate this person, you're going to have a, a thousand others. And at that point, the cost is going to be so prohibitive that you just can't do it. So cost is a consideration, okay. but it would be up to the employer to establish that the cost of accommodation is so significant, so severe, mm-hmm. that we don't have to do it. 416-216-5900, Lior at employmenthour.com. Uh, what are some common examples of accommodation other than religion? Yeah, so... A family status, we talked about that in previous shows. Explain that, yeah. And that may mean that an employer has to allow the employee to meet their family obligations. Uh, or it could be child care, so allow the employee to come in early uh, or come in late and leave early to, to take their kids to school or even to care for a parent. Yeah, I have a, a parent that lives with me, dependent on me. I have to be at a certain time to be able to, to take care of them. So the employer has to provide accommodation. The most common type of accommodation, as I said uh, earlier, has to do with medical reasons. So people get hurt, whether it's in the workplace or outside of the workplace. Okay. doesn't matter if you got hurt in your own time. Uh, and you may need different hours or you may need other duties, modified duties, uh, or, or you may need any other type of help. And the employer has to provide that. Now, in order to provide accommodation for medical reasons, the employer would have to be provided with something from a doctor saying, here's what the employee needs. It's not enough for the employee to say, well, I decided that I need a job where I'm at, I'm, I'm at a computer all day. Uh, if you need a job that you're in the computer all day for medical reason, that has to be backed up by a doctor. And it doesn't make a difference whether it was something they did on the weekend water skiing or whether it happened in the workplace. Absolutely not. Really? What matters is, is there a legitimate medical uh, issue? And it becomes legitimate if a doctor says You need it documentation is. from a doctor. Absolutely. And the employer cannot seek any further information from a doctor say what what's wrong with you basically no the employer is not allowed to know what's wrong yeah. with you but the employer does have a right to know what limitations you have okay. so uh, the employer has a right to know you know if the limitation is you can't stand for more than 30 minutes or you can't lift more than 30 pounds or whatever it is you have to be sitting or standing so the employer has a right but it doesn't have a right to know if the limitations are as a result of you having a bad back or if you're having a cancer Right. That the employer doesn't have a right None to know. their enough. business. Windsor, uh, Windsor uh, is not the right to be accommodated, not entitled. Uh, well, first of all, you don't have a right to be accommodated if it's uh, on the basis of something that's not outlined in the Human Rights Code. So the Human Rights Code only provides for the duty to accommodate in specific situations. Uh, you know, uh, age, position, uh, sorry, uh, age, uh, discri- uh, disability, religion, family mm-hmm. status, uh, sexual orientation. But other than that, no, there's no obligation to accommodate otherwise. And there's also no obligation to accommodate when the cost or, or, or the complexity of the accommodation is going to get too prohibitive. In those situations, the employer doesn't have to provide that accommodation. 416-216-5900, Lior at employmenthour.com. How far do you have to go to accommodate? How far does the company have to go? When is, uh, you know, when's enough is enough? Yeah, the, right? the, the Human Rights Code uses the language undue hardship. So you have to provide accommodation till the point of undue hardship. Effectively, what this means in English is you have to provide accommodation until the point where it gets so hard to provide that accommodation that it's just not reasonable. Now, there have been thousands of cases fought over when it is undue hardship, when it is too hard, because the employer may say, well, no, this is too much, and the employer may say, no, it's not. So sometimes it may be up to a court or a human rights tribunal to decide. But it is a very strict duty. In order to to, to, uh, use that or to, to do what you're supposed to, in order to relieve yourself from the obligation to accommodate, the employer really has to show that they've done everything reasonable in their power. Uh, and usually that means uh, making real efforts, uh, looking in the workplace to see what uh, help they can provide. 
And the duty to accommodate is probably going to be more strict on large employers because large employers are going to have more resources. Yeah. They're going to have more flexibility. They may have more jobs available where they can uh, put employees than a small, you know, two-man operation. There's only so much uh, an employer can do with a, such a small business. With no names mentioned in your practice over the last, you know, years, have you seen any outlandish, outlandish accommodations or requests for accommodation? Yeah, I, I have. I, I mean, I, I, I have seen situations where the person was essentially not able to do anything and still ask for accommodation. They weren't able to stand. They weren't able to sit. They weren't able to lift anything. They weren't able to, uh, to stand up, sit upright in, uh, in front of a computer for, for more than a few minutes. Uh, so, so certainly that is uh, something that the employer can say, well, what, what can we actually uh, make you do? There still has to be meaningful work that the employee can, uh, uh, can do. The other uh, type of accommodation that I saw had to do with religious accommodation. The employee claimed that they're, they're required to be given two days off every week for religious reasons, which just was not nice. reasonable, and there was no legal basis for Sign it. Sign me up for that one. Yeah, me I'm too. In. Me I'll too. do that one for sure. We'll take a short break and talk more about the understanding of duty of accommodation right here on the Employment Hour. The number is 416-216-5900 and Lior at employmenthour.com. And talk radio, AM 640 and AM 900 CHML. The number to call, 416-216-5900, Lior at employmenthour.com. We'll get to a couple of your emails here in a few minutes. Uh, we're talking about understanding the duty to accommodate. Now, how can an employee know if an employer can provide accommodation or just you know, chosen not to? Yeah, and, and, and this is tough. I get calls every single day, no exceptions, five days a week and even more on the weekend, where people uh, are concerned or people are uh, alleging that the employer is just not helping them. Usually it's because of medical reasons. So I have a disability, my, I need modified duties, modified hours, and the employer is saying no. Uh, in most of these cases, the employee is right. We're talking about employers that don't even care, don't even look at, at their ability to accommodate, and mm-hmm. they, they just say no. But there are situations where the employer legitimately cannot do that. So, and we may not may not know each case if that's if that's the issue. So I look at a few things. I look at the size of the company. I look at how extreme the request for accommodation is. Is it just one of those things where uh, I, I just need to work seven hours a day instead of eight, or I need to not lift more than 50 pounds? So how uh, uh, strict is the request to accommodate? Right. Did the employer provide accommodations to others in that situation? And based on that, we need to make a judgment call as to how reasonable or unreasonable the employer has been. Because if the employer has acted in an unreasonable way, if they haven't met their duty to accommodate, that employer is in violation of the Human Rights Code. So, they, so they've done that. In addition to that, the failure to accommodate in and of itself can result in, in the termination. So if you don't meet the duty to accommodate, uh, you, you, it's as if you've terminated the employee. So you may have to pay that employee severance. So an employee that has not been accommodated may find themselves, or in the eyes of the law, as being entitled to severance and not having to just sit at home uh, and until the employer decides to change its mind. Give us some examples of cases where uh, courts have imposed duty to accommodate. Uh, the, the, probably the most recent cases, mm-hmm. the cases that have been uh, in, in the public attention, public's attention over the last couple of years, have actually to do with family status. Uh, there was a couple of in- very interesting cases where uh, people working uh, f- for you know very large corporation, husband and wife, and the uh, because they were both working shift work, so they would mm-hmm. be working nights or, or they'd be working days. Uh, there'd be no one to to, pay, to to pick up the kids. And the mother decided to uh, request time off, or no time off, to, to request uh, 
other other shift, so a different shift than her husband's, so that she can actually at least someone could be uh, home. Seems with reasonable. The kids. Seems right? reasonable. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the, that employer has provided had provided employees with other shifts in different circumstances, not because of childcare, uh, but that employer said, "No, we're not going to do that. That's your problem." And the matter went to the human rights tribunal, mm. which decided that no, that that's a, that was a failure to accommodate. It imposed a significant amount of uh, fi- a significant, a significant uh, fine on the employee, significant fine. In addition to that, the uh, employer was uh, ordered to allow the employee to work the different shift. That was appealed to the federal court because that was a federal case. Wow. The court agreed with the uh, employee, and. That was, you know, a very big issue. Got employers thinking that you can't just say, well, you know, it's your kid, it's your problem. Employers now have to really take a good, hard look at to what as to what accommodation they have to provide. They can provide to a mother, to a father, uh, to any person that's uh, that has a responsibility towards a family member. Does that fine that the uh, company paid? Does that go to the employer? Yes, it does. It eh? does. Wow. Yeah, in this case, it, it went. It's what we call uh, general damages, and it's it's really a fine. If effect, it's effectively compensation for having your rights violated. So it's not to compensate you for any out-of-pocket expenses. Simply, you had your rights violated. That's wrong. We're going to penalize the employer for doing that and make him pay you a whole lot of money. I guess the, uh, the the real downside of that would be the you know the the environment to work in after that, right? Yeah, no, I don't think that person is going back to work there. I really? think they're going to take their money and, and, and just probably leave. Uh, and in most of these cases, by the way, I, I yeah I never really recommend someone to take legal action against their employer while they're still working there. Uh, it's just not going to be a, a very good work environment. Yeah, um, what can an employee do if their employer does not provide proper accommodation? Before well, it goes all the way to you know federal court. Yeah, right? yeah. No, first of all, you have to get some some, uh, some legal advice. But I would always want the employee to uh, to be able to paper the situation. So I want them in writing to ask for the accommodation to uh, provide the inf- the employer with as much information as possible as to the type of accommodation they're asking for and why. Mm-hmm. I want the employer to understand that this is not, we're not asking for this because we think this is going to be better for us. We're asking for this because there's either a medical reason or there's another legitimate reason. Now, if despite all this, the employer still says no, you, you got to get some legal advice because at that point, uh, if you decide to just continue working in any event, you're considered to have accepted this failure to uh, accommodate yeah. and you can't do anything about it. You have to get legal advice, and at that point, we may decide to pursue it by way of either a human rights complaint mm-hmm. or a claim for wrongful dismissal if we decide that the employer should have accommodated. 416-216-5900 and Lior at employmenthour.com. We'll get to one of those right now in email. Uh, Joe and Markham says, my wife is about to return to work from maternity leave. Her employer has told her that they only have a part-time job for, not a full-time. What can she do? Yeah, and you know, I, I actually had a fairly similar case uh, very recently uh, as this. So, if assuming, and I'm assuming this, that Joe's wife was working full time mm-hmm. uh, before, but now the employer can say says it only has a part time job. The employer's obligation is to provide the employee with the job, either the same job or a very similar job to the one that the employee had before they went on mad leave. So to start off with, if now the only job that they're going to have is a, is a part-time job, that would be a constructive dismissal. Yep. So the employer doesn't have a right to change a, a full-time job to a part-time job, which means that means that Joe's wife can say, I'm not going to accept this part-time job and make you, employer, pay me my severance. Now, if the reason why the employer doesn't uh, want to provide a full-time job is related to the mat leave. Well, you took mat leave. We don't think you're reliable, so we don't want you working full-time. Smelling human rights. That's yeah. a human rights mm-hmm. issue. If it's legitimate, we just don't have any more full-time work, there's nothing we can find you, then it may not be a human rights issue, 
but it's still a constructive dismissal. So either way, Joe's wife is owed severance. She does not have to accept a part-time job if she doesn't want it. And she should give you a call, 416-216-5900 and Lior at employmenthour.com to get a hold of you. Lots more of the show coming up here. We'll take a short break on the Employment Hour and Talk Radio AM 640 and AM 900 CHML. And the number any time to get a hold of Lior is 416-216-5900 and Lior, L-I-O-R, employmenthour.com. I want to bounce over to another email here. we got to Iris in Hamilton says, Over the last few weeks, my employer has been late in paying employees their checks. Sometimes it is as much as four to five days late. Uh, that makes it very difficult. You have to pay bills. No kidding. What can we do? Yeah, no kidding at all. Yeah. Brutal. It is brutal. And it's not something that it's acceptable. One of the most fundamental things in the, the employment relationship is that you get paid and you get paid on time. You come to work, you do your job, the employer pays you on the dates and the times that you've agreed on. So it's a very fundamental thing, a very fundamental change in problem when the employer doesn't meet that obligation. So what does that mean for Iris? Well, what it means is that she doesn't have to accept it. It means she, say, she can say, you've breached this fundamental term of our relationship, that you will pay me every fi- Friday, and now instead you're paying me uh, the following Thursday. So I don't have to accept that. That is a constructive dismissal, so I can leave and make you pay me severance. Now, she may say, well, that's not what I want. I, I, I don't want to leave. I don't want severance. I want to no. continue working. Unfortunately, there's no way to make physically the employer pay on time. You either accept that you're not going to get paid on time or you do something about leaving and getting your severance. The problem, by the way, is if she continues working under those circumstances and in three months, for example, she says, well, now, now I'm really fed up. Now right. I don't want that. By then, she's deemed to have accepted this. She deemed, she's deemed to have accepted that she doesn't get paid on Friday. She gets paid you know, a few whenever. days after, whenever the employer <laughs> right. gets around to it. Right. And then she may not be able to do anything about it. So that's mm-hmm. a problem. So I would certainly have her consider whether she wants to continue working in those situations because, yeah, I understand. You have to pay your mortgage on time. The, your bank's not going to say, ah, pay it whenever you get the check. Right. You can still have to pay it on time, so you need that money coming in. And there's, you said there's nothing legally she can do. There's nothing the Ministry of Labor can do to get the, the employer to... You know, get uh, on time. <laughs> practically, no. And by the time wow. you file an application with the Ministry of Labor, I mean, it, it, it's not going to help you. No. The, practically speaking, the only way to do it is treat this as a, as a termination and, and get your severance. The only thing. We get, you, you mentioned the Ministry of Labor before, uh, Labor before we get to the severance calculator before we wrap here. And we get emails for this every week. We get the same thing. People saying, I got two weeks per year, a week per year. Is this right? Should I get more? Explain again for about the hundredth time in the show, but we do it every week, why this is a problem. Uh, is it a problem, John? I didn't, I didn't know that was a problem. Forget it. Take your two weeks. It's Just fine. run. It's Don't good. Yeah. It's a huge, huge, huge problem. Yeah. I, I mean, I personally, over the past 10 years, have talked to people that have lost tens of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. because they called the Ministry of Labor and got the wrong advice. Now, to be clear, when you lose your job and you call the Ministry of Labor or you look for information on the Ministry of Labor's website, the Ministry of Labor can only and only advises employees with respect to their minimum entitlements, not their full entitlements. Mm-hmm. So they may tell you that you're owed two-week severance, not telling you really that two-week severance is your minimum entitlements, but you're actually owed six-month severance. So you hear, okay, I'm only owed two-month severance. My employer offered me three weeks. I guess that's fine. You accept three-week severance, where in fact, it should have been six months. I see this every day, and what I've just described happens dozens of times every single day, every day of the week. Now, uh, what, what I'm going to tell you, though, is that there's a, an alternative to that. And the alternative we've created it is we created the Severance Pay Calculator, mm-hmm. which you've alluded to. So severancepaycalculator.com, if you lose your job, 
what this does is it calculates, it tells you how much severance you're actually entitled to, your full entitlements, not your minimum entitlements. It tells you how much severance should someone in your situation get. So what do you do? Well, you go to severancepaycalculator.com or you download uh, the app if you want. You can download it for uh, iPhone or iPad or you just do it online, severancepaycalculator.com. You enter three pieces of information, how long you've worked, how old you are, and the type of job. It's a drop-down menu that you can choose from. And then it's going to tell you how many months of, or, or weeks of severance you're owed. And it's also going to tell you the dollar value of that. Which could be the shocking part. Right? And it's going to calculate how, how different is your severance offer from what you actually should have been offered. So if you've hmm. been offered three weeks and you should have been offered six months, it's going to tell you the, the, the dollar figure there. And it is a shocker to most people. It's a very neat tool. Everyone should go and use severancepaycalculator.com right now. Very easy to use. Please don't call the Ministry of Labor, not because they're bad, just because they cannot help you. And describe how it works for employers as well, right? Employers are in the same situation. I've had cases over the years where I've seen employers get sued for wrongful dismissal because all they've done is they followed the Ministry of Labor advice. I have two cases right now where I'm representing employers where those employers got sued for wrongful dismissal simply because they, they didn't know any better, small employers, Call the Ministry of Labor, ask, how much seven should I pay this employee? Oh, he's been with you for three years, give him three weeks. Okay, I'll give him three weeks, only to get sued and now find out that they owe them eight months of compensation. So the same problem applies, and employers can do the same thing. Use severancepaycalculator.com. There's an employer mode on it. Again, it's free, it's fast, it's accurate, it's really helpful. That'll be it for this week, my friend. Uh, we'll take it from here and join us again next week for uh, for more here right on the Employment Hour. The number outside of show hours to get hold of Lior is 416-216-5900. Keep that number in your uh, in your smartphone for sure. And Lior at employmenthour.com. That'll be a wrap for this week on Talk Radio AM 640 and AM 900 CHML.